We are winding our uh, seven letters series down. If you're new with us this morning, we've been working our way just through the first part of the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, uh, where Jesus speaks to seven churches who would have been along a major route. So if you look at the map behind me, uh, we are now in, uh, today we're going to be in the city of Philadelphia. Next week will be our last one in the series when we look at the, the church uh, in Laodicea. Uh, so we give you that map just to kind of give you a visual. Um, and then after we conclude this series, we're actually going to be talking about wisdom. Uh, wisdom is something that we desperately need. And so we are going to be going uh, to the Old Testament books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Uh, sources of wisdom uh, from two different perspectives. And so if you would like to, to you know, be a book nerd and go ahead and be reading ahead, you can go ahead and read the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. That's where we'll be spending the, the summer and uh, on into the first part of the fall. Uh, but this morning, let's give our attention to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. Uh, if you don't have uh, your own copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to Grab one of those black Bibles that's in the rack in front of you. You can use that one. Uh, you can even take it home with you if you need to. Um, and it should be, uh, we sh- you should find our, today's passage on page 1029. So this is Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Let's give our attention to God's word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One. The true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down, come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Once again, Lord God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear. That as we talk about these verses, these these words to this early church, Lord, that you would help us to understand them first and then to apply them to our own hearts and minds and lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I've 
I've never been in an earthquake. I don't know if you've ever experienced an earthquake. I haven't. I imagine it would be, um, no pun intended, I imagine it would be quite unsettling. Um, Maybe there was a pun intended in that. Um, I remember a friend of mine, a guy that we knew in in Jackson when we were in seminary, uh, who lived for a time in Japan. Japan uh, suffers from probably more earthquakes than any other country on the planet. Uh, And he, he he sent a video he recorded a video of him walking. He was walking in a city park when an earthquake began. So, like, you, you can see the trees. He's walking along a sidewalk, and just beyond the trees, you see the, 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 the skyscrapers. Uh, and then the earthquake starts. And, and the wildest thing about uh, the video uh, it wasn't, you know, the swaying buildings or anything like that. But when he, when he panned down to the sidewalk that he was walking on, uh, the concrete, like paper, was just tearing apart and coming back together. Concrete, you know, hardened rock, parting and coming back together. Uh, and because I think this, I think he was in Tokyo, which is near the ocean, um, because they were, they were near the water, every time that the sidewalk would come apart, water would bubble up uh, and then it would go back down. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be, you know, scary um, to, to, to know that the, the, like, you know, tornadoes are scary. We experience those. Or we have experienced a couple of those here recently, but we go into shelters, right? Or we, we get in a basement, like we find a, a safe place. But where do you go when, like, the safe place isn't safe, right? Where the, even, even a concrete bunker where the safest place is actually out in the open where nothing can fall on you, right? Uh, Well, that would have been the experience of the people who lived in the ancient city of Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia was near a fault line, uh, which meant they were used to volcanoes. There's another terrifying thing, you know, where hot lava just shoots up out of the ground, Um, right? They were used to volcanoes and earthquakes. In fact, uh, the city of Philadelphia, a few decades before this was written, actually had been destroyed by an earthquake. And so as people, the, the people of Philadelphia, actually many of them chose not to live in the city, but out in the open country where they were at risk of you know, being burglarized, etc. Because if you were in the city and an earthquake came, you were at risk of the wall falling on you. So you chose to live outside the walls instead. Um, and so it's no accident that when Jesus speaks to his people... In Philadelphia, he brings them promises of security and stability. That would have been something that they very much wanted to hear, and that is exactly what Jesus brings. Uh, and, and this morning, right, we're going to recognize our high school graduates who you, you may have some idea of where you're going and what your job's going to be or what it is you're going to study, but everybody who's been on the other side of that knows how much those things can change. I'm probably not the only one who changed their major a couple of times, all right? And so the future, despite the map, is still uncertain. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus promises security, Jesus promises stability in the midst of insecurity, in the midst of instability. So let's look at what Jesus promises to this Small but faithful church, right? He, he promises 
three things, at least broadly speaking. He promises first that he's going to turn their weakness into an open door. Second, that he is going to turn their enemies into friends. And then finally, Jesus promises that he is going to turn suffering into glory. Those are the the, the three things that Jesus promises, the the types of security that Jesus promises this church. So let's Let's first look at what it means that Jesus is going to turn weakness into an open door. Look again at verse 7. Look how Jesus identifies himself. He, he says that he is the Holy One and the True One. So he's God himself. And he's true. He's faithful. He's not a liar. He's not unstable. He's not unfaithful. He's true and he's trustworthy. And then he says this. He's the one who has the key of David. The one who opens doors that nobody can shut. And the one who shuts doors that no one can open. Right? What Jesus is saying about himself, and he's uh, a lot of these words come from Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is saying that he has the authority of God's kingdom. That he alone has the ultimate authority of God's kingdom. And that when he opens a door, nobody can shut it. And when he closes a door, no one else can open it, right? He has final say over who's in and who's out. And he uses that authority for the good of his church. He says there in verse 8, Look, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. What does he mean by that? Well, uh, we often forget this, but what is what exactly is the church's main function what does the church exist to do why has jesus left his people in the world and you can get a sense uh, of that by looking at the symbol that jesus uses for his churches in these early chapters the churches are called lampstands that jesus is the light And the church exists as a lampstand to display Jesus. In other words, the church does not exist for itself. The church exists to bear witness to Jesus in the world. The church is, yes, a hospital for weary sinners, but it's also an outpost for the kingdom of God. And that the church exists to welcome people to Jesus and to tell people about Jesus. And so when Jesus says he's given them an open door, you know, we, you often hear people talking about uh, God's open doors. But usually when we talk about that, we mean it in the sense of opportunities for ourselves, right? God opened a, uh, God opened a door for a promotion. God opened a, a door for us to, to buy this house. God opened a door for our business to make this acquisition. Something like that. God opened a door for me to be able to go to this particular school. But that's not the way that the Bible talks about open doors. When the Bible talks about open doors, it actually means something very different. Let's look at how the New Testament talks about open doors. If You, uh, you don't have to turn here, uh, but in Acts 14, 27 a book that we just finished studying, Luke says this, uh, when Paul and Barnabas come back to their home church to report on their, uh, their first missionary journey, it says this, 
When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That means that so the open door is the open door of the kingdom and that people were coming into the kingdom because of the efforts of Paul and Barnabas. He writes this, Paul writes this in Colossians 4, 3. He says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Now, what is the, so what is the door open for? That's to tell people about Jesus. The open door is, is, a, is a missionary opportunity. It's a gospel speaking opportunity. Now, here's something else. When we talk about open doors commonly, when we talk about that culturally speaking, we often mean that we were unopposed, right? That there were no hurdles, that nobody got in the way. That's what we think when we think of an open door. But that's actually not, again, how the Bible talks. Listen again. Uh, let's keep reading what Paul says uh, to the Colossian church. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Prison? Prison's like the opposite of an open door, right? But that for Paul, he doesn't care whether he's in prison or out of prison. He knows that the gospel can go forth wherever, right? That God is not hampered by his circumstances. He writes this to in his first letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he says, A wide door for effective work has opened to me. Okay, so again, effective work, gospel work. And then he says this, And there are many adversaries. Yeah, that's right the opposite of how I think about an open door. Right, if I see adversaries, I'm just going to assume that that door is closed. And there must be some other way I'm supposed to go. But that is not the way the Bible talks. Bible, in fact, the Bible seems to suggest that the best door, the best opportunity for gospel work goes right through opposition, goes right through adversaries. That's what's happening in Philadelphia. These people are not powerful. These people do not have clout. They have been marginalized. And yet, Jesus says, I'm going to give you an open door for effective work. I'm going to give you an open door that no one can shut. So when the Bible is talking about an open door, it's referring to people coming into the kingdom through believing the good news. And that doesn't happen free from opposition, but also in the very middle of it. And so Jesus goes on and he says, um, I know that you have but little power. You have but little power, yet they remain faithful. See, we think that we have to open the door. We think things like um, we need cultural credibility. We need political power. We need acceptance. We need influence. But this would seem to indicate that actually Jesus doesn't need any of those things. You see, we, we want to accrue for ourselves strength and power and influence. And Jesus is suggesting that, no, actually, he works best when we have little power. That his kingdom succeeds not when we're right in the mainstream, but when we're pressed to the margins. 
We think that if Jesus is going to succeed, we need to have clout. We need to have social standing. But these brothers and sisters, they don't have that. They don't have much. They're not very big. They have very little social standing. But what they do have is this. They keep plotting along in faithfulness. They keep Jesus' word. They keep plotting along in making Jesus known. They have not dishonored his name. Even when it costs them. And what does Jesus do? He opens the door. And can any of their opponents shut it? Absolutely not. Jesus takes their weakness and turns it into an open door. And what is it that happens when that door opens? Jesus takes enemies and turns them into friends. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. Now, we, we, this synagogue of Satan phrase, we looked at this a few weeks ago when we uh, talked about the church in Smyrna. Uh, so I won't go into a whole lot of detail, but... What this, who these people are is they are ethnic Jews who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They are ethnically Jewish, but Jesus says they are not actually true Israel. They are not truly the people of God because they have rejected Jesus as Messiah. And because they have rejected Jesus as Messiah, now, that, now they are working against God's people in Philadelphia. They are opposing God's work. And therefore, Jesus says, they have unwittingly become not God's synagogue, but Satan's synagogue. They have unwittingly become the tool of God's enemy because they are opposing his son, Jesus. But here's what, here's what Jesus promises to these, the small faithful church. He says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Now, bear with me for a second. Jesus is referencing a series of promises from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Um, and so you can write these down. I'm not going to read them, but if you want to write them down and come back to them later, uh, they're very powerful. Isaiah 45, 14, Isaiah 49, 23, and Isaiah 60, 14. And what these promises, uh, when Isaiah writes these words, Israel has been overrun by her enemies. So, so the people of God have been conquered by foreign nations. So they, 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 are, they are less than influential. They are the low man on the totem pole. Things do not look good. But through Isaiah, God promises a day of great reversal. That he's going to turn things around. And instead of his people being taken advantage of, instead of... Uh, the boot coming to stomp down on them, the, the nations will come to Israel not to conquer but to worship. They will come to finally acknowledge that God is the one true God. That's what Isaiah says will come in that day, that, that, that God is going to reverse things so that those who are downtrodden are exalted and those who are opposed to God now come to worship God. So you see that even in the Old Testament, God is a missionary God. He still seeks to reach the nations, even in the Old Testament. He says, a day is coming when all my enemies are going to come, and they're going to bow the knee. 
Those who formerly despise God's people will change their tune. Now here's the crazy thing. Jesus applies those promises not to Israel. Not to the ethnic Jews. He applies those promises to his church. To this humble gathering of Jews and Gentiles who have professed faith in Jesus. They have become the true Israel. They are the true people of God. And the, and the beauty of God's grace. Look again at verse 9, the very end. He says, they will learn that I have loved you. Through the faithful endurance of this little powerless church, God takes their enemies and turns them into friends. But there will be some in Philadelphia who are a part of the synagogue of Satan, who through the endurance of the Christians will finally say, God really does love them. I really do want to know that God. This doesn't look like a begrudging bowing of the knee. This is a willing bowing of the knee when enemies come to know God himself. And really, that's the story of every person. Not just these ethnic Jews in Philadelphia, but that's the story of every person who would know God. That's your story. That you were an enemy of God, and he has turned you into a friend. He has, he has given you the new birth. He has worked in your heart and turned him so that you are no longer running away, no longer a rebel, but you now actually desire to know him and desire to walk with him. Jesus takes the weakness of these believers and turns it into an open door. And through that open door, he brings people into the kingdom, people who formerly were opposed to him. But there's one more promise that he makes. He promises that he will turn their suffering into glory. You know, this, is, uh, this church and the church in Smyrna are the only two churches that receive nothing but praise from Jesus. In this list of seven, there are only two that Jesus does not have something, um, does not challenge. That Jesus just praises them. He commends them. And if you notice, he doesn't mention, he, he barely mentions anything about their struggle here. We don't really know what's going on. He says they have little strength, which, would, which we would assume to mean that they've been marginalized, that they don't have cultural influence or power. But he doesn't really go into great detail about the kind of suffering that they're going through. In fact, he spends most of the time talking about the great things he has in store for them. It's like what Paul says in Romans 8.18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. Christian, is that how you live? Regardless of what's happening around you, do you live with a conscious awareness that the glory to be revealed is so much better, that the best is still yet to come? That's what Jesus promises these people. First in verse 10, he promises them spiritual safety in the present. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. It's not exactly clear what that hour of trial is. Was it a, a local disaster? Was it widespread persecution? Uh, it's, it's not 100% clear. But what is clear 
is that Jesus promises that they will not spiritually fall away. He doesn't promise physical safety. In fact, Jesus prays for all believers in John 17, not that God would take us out of the world, but that he would keep us safe from the evil one. That's what Jesus promises them here, that they will be spiritually secure even in the midst of trial, that he will not let them go. But then he also promises them a secure place in his presence forever. Now remember, the people in Philadelphia lived with kind of a constant sense of dread that the walls were going to come falling in around them. So in light of that, I want you to listen to what Jesus promises these people in verse 12. He says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What's a pillar? That's something secure. That's something steady. That's something strong. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What's the temple for? What's in the temple? God is. The temple is God's, is the place of God's presence. It's where God lives. And unlike those who have to flee the city every, every time there's an earthquake, Jesus says that the one who is a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. You never have to leave. Jesus promises eternal security for those who trust in him. He promises a future that will not crumble. He promises the new city, the new Jerusalem, the presence of God. He promises a name that no one can take away, a new identity. What do we do with that? Well, first, to the believer, I would say, don't be surprised by suffering. Don't fall into fear and despair and cynicism and pessimism, those things are unbelief. You don't have to hunker down and hide. You don't have to be afraid of an uncertain future because God has secured it in his son. He promises. And remember, he's the holy one. He's the true one. He's not a liar. He's faithful and true. He himself has done what is necessary. He himself has secured that future with his own blood. So there's no amount of righteousness that you can pay to get into heaven, right? You don't earn your passport into glory. Jesus freely gives it. Jesus freely gives admission to those who trust in him. You don't have to be afraid of an uncertain future. And I would say that same thing to those of you who don't yet know Jesus. You also don't have to be afraid of an uncertain future. You don't have to worry about what may come. Your hope can be certain as well. You too can be secured by the work and worth of Jesus. And so the question I would ask you this morning is, are you? Do you have a secure hope? What kind of city do you live in? And can you rest secure in it? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray 
that you would uh, help us to be faithful, that you would give us, Lord, an open door, that we would not seek to fight the cultural battles on culture's terms or the world's terms, but, Lord, that we would hold fast your name and that we would keep your word and that we would plod by the power of your grace. Lord, for those who are wondering, for those who may not have a certain and secure and stable future, Lord, I pray that this morning they would know the goodness of your grace, that they would believe in Jesus and rest secure forever. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.